This is The Playbook. I am at the legendary SoFi Stadium with another legend here, the legendary Dane Cook comedian. Look at this dump. Actor. Look at this dump. Look at this place. Can you find it a It needs seat? a fresh coat of paint over here. <laughs> and this is, uh, it's, it's, there's nobody here today. The, 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 no tickets have been sold. Charges must be playing. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, man, it's a real honor to sit here and have a, a chat in such a, uh, an incredible edifice. So good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And the reason is, is that I love comedians, not just because they're funny, because I really respect intelligence. And I always say, if I'm the smartest one in the room, I'm in the wrong room. And if there's a good <laughs> comedian in the room, I'm definitely not the smartest one in the room. Some of the most intelligent people that I've had on the playbook and I've been blessed to be around are so hyper intelligent that it's you know mind blowing to me how quick a brain can work. Right. And not only work but work to entertain sure. and to bring joy and i believe that's the true intent of comedy in itself and entertaining people as an actor for you what inspires you to be funny wow man it's well just to to in tandem with what you said you know being a stand-up comic it takes a lot of years to get past the initial you know nervousness whether it's stage fright whether it's you know are my ideas good enough most of the time no but once you <laughs> can crack the code and you kind of know your persona, know that character, then it is quite an incredible experience to tap into everything, whether it's your vulnerability, being introspective, being absurd, being irreverent, and to be able to have all those things working in real time, off the cuff, oftentimes, you know, you try to be formulaic, somebody's going to yell something, somebody's going to drop something. And the next thing you know, it's, it's everything is happening, um, you know, in, in, uh, in the, in the absolute present. You have to pull upon all those things that, you know, you've practiced and rehearsed for years and years. The reason I wanted to get into stand-up comedy, well, it's kind of a twofold. Initially, it was a great escape from hardship. Um, I grew up in a family that was uh, uh, unfortunately encumbered with alcoholism. Mm. And my mother and I had the ability, even on the worst capsizing moments, to find a way to laugh through things that if I were to quote some of the things that we said during some of those dire situations, you'd probably say... Oh man, that it seems like uh, that's kind of a dark corner that you don't want to linger in too long. But if you find your yourself holding on to humor, I think that you can shed light on on any of those corners. So part of it was for my own existence and for my own well-being, and then the realization that I could offer that to others. You know, comedy can be an escape for other people. If I'm enjoying it and I'm using my platform as a way to entertain, it could also be maybe pulling somebody out of a dark moment that they're encumbered in. One of the things that I've been accused of. I come from a family of six and okay. also a lot of trauma. Where do you, where do Mid you fit? Middle high. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so <laughs> um, until my fifties, I would continually use humor uh, in mostly tenuous situations sure. uh, to help either ease my pain or ease other pain. Right. Have you found that to be a personal habit of yours to still use humor in difficult situations to ease pain for yourself? Oh, it's it's almost like um, it's almost like a, a life cheat code of getting away from turmoil. You know, if you can find a way to, you know, add um, laughter, humor, um, just one tiny chortle sometimes can break you out of a mentality that can, you know, diminish your positivity. Um, you know, I mentor a lot of young artists, uh, comics, but even beyond. And the one thing that uh, well, I try to stay out of their way and let the integrity of the act grow organically. But what I really try to impart is 
You have to wake up every day, start with those affirmations. If you can find a little way to laugh something off or start that that morning with, uh, with laughter, with humor, you'll find that that wave you can ride throughout what might be a, a tricky or stressful day. Um, comedy has a way to be a, a wonderful adhesive to keep things together when times are a little tough. One of the insights that I've gotten from being around so many great comedians is that, you know, the mind does move fast. Sure. And you have an inner Sometimes too fast. Right. <laughs> and, you ha- and you have this inner voice. And I've classified uh, comedians with three types of listening characteristics. One would be the interrupter because your mind moves so fast and it's funny too, right? And you'll just interrupt someone and have right. that quick darted statement. Sure. That quick shot- quips, quick yeah, jabs. Great. And yeah, it yeah. becomes difficult for you. Whether you're a comedian or not, if you have this type of brain to stay quiet for a second, which results in the second characteristic, (laughs) what I call the waiter, right? Your mind's so fast. And so you're really not listening to the other person. You're just waiting to tell them all the fast stuff that you've thought of and be able to do it. And then it takes a real challenge comedian or quick thinker, as I call it, to really be an impactful listener. And sometimes I find that the comedians that have evolved to be able to actually slow down the quickness right. and grab what someone else is saying and then sure. use the quickness. Well, the game get- does slow down as years go by and that's what you want in, in anything you're participatory in. You want it to feel like you're in real time. Uh, I think to add to that list is yeah. also the, the abandoner, which <laughs> is the realization that I may have something funny to say, listening to see if it's the proper moment to inject it, and then when you realize sometimes that moment is either past or th- th- this is not the moment for that piece of humor, you quickly that <laughs> goes that goes overboard. So you do have to be, um, you know, always available to listen, even when you're editing on the fly and wanting to retort. And it's interesting because we're a little bit older. And so we probably grew up with the same heroes as comedians. Sure. Which would not be socially acceptable today. A lot of them are <laughs> just like right, most right, musicians, right. right? I don't know how Snoop Dogg has avoided, you know, his past. You know, I can listen to some of his songs now. I'm like, God, it's amazing this guy hasn't been canceled, but I'm glad he hasn't because I love right. him. But one luckily, of- youthful naivete is always, uh, <laughs> yeah, a, an uptick for um, getting I've away learned- with some of the things, uh, <laughs> sins of our youth. I've learned my lessons, right? <laughs> but comedians, I think, have it the hardest of anyone, and I think it's one of the tragedies of the cancel culture that right. let's say when you have a guy like Seinfeld who doesn't want to you know entertain at colleges because he's afraid right you know of a of a flashback so how has that culture affected your comedy because you Great talked question. about this right. abandonment i would think that becomes a bigger issue today than yep. ever well it's twofold for me you know this is my 31 years doing stand up comedy and right around year 15 uh to keep myself from getting stuck in whatever it was before being canceled, it was, you know, you weren't PC, I guess, for a while there. And what I learned was if you're observing and reporting on your life and the things that have happened to you, around you, from you, that's all uh, par for the course. If you're trying to tell somebody else's story from a vantage point that you've never lived, you can't, you can't uh, entertain in that realm the way you used to. You used to be able to get, with a, get away with a lot more comedy that was like um what would you brand it as being like um 
derogatory. Yeah, right. Right. Teasing derogatory or, teasing. They call it bullying now. You know, <laughs> low hanging fruit. You know, bullying. Yeah. yeah. And uh, to me personally, I n- I never liked that style of stand up comedy anyway. But it did exist, and that's less and less because if you're not talking about your own personal experiences, why are you talking about somebody else's? I'd rather hear a person from that neck of the woods get on stage and tell me a funny antidote about growing up in that experience and let me learn it directly from the the horse's mouth and all great entertainers uh athletes uh actors musicians comedians uh even speak corporate speakers they have what's called i think a channeling process that sometimes Hmm. you get into this flow and if somebody asked you to repeat your performance, it would be oh. a complete impossibility. Right. Because it came through you. It would you. be a dud. Yeah, right. exactly. exactly. Yeah, you're trying to re- reenact something that was can comedians so organic. Get can comedians well, get flow like that? Well, you know what you want to try to do as a comic? And if you watch comedy a lot, you'll see that there is a there is a formula because you're working on a routine, right? If I came to you and said, I want to tell a story about uh, my pick six on Tom Brady. True story, by the way, if you want to ask me about it. I had a I pick do. six on Tom Brady in a charity event years ago. But if you said cultivate that into material, I'd have to probably spend about six months to a year in clubs, working on the nuances, working on he said, I said, uh, what's a funny ending? What's a better way to... And then what you want to be able to do is have that formulaic piece of material, but then throw it away and just be with that audience. Because it is ultimately a conversation with your audience. You know, in your public speaking, yeah. if you're just telling them something that's very different from listening to the reaction of the room and responding from that, that is um, that is being in the truth, and the truth is alluring. Speaking of the truth, I gotta digress for one second sure. because I thought I heard you say you picked up picked off the goat for a pick six. I really did. Tell just real quick. <laughs> I gotta. I'm a football guy, right? I've seen all the different beach bowls yeah, out yeah. there. The flag. <laughs> How, how did this happen? Okay, so I was doing uh, Best Buddies back in Boston when Tom was back up there with uh, my Patriots. I'm a Boston kid. Nice. Right of Boston. So you and like to asked, win, in other words. That? You like to win. I like to win. I like <laughs> uh, And the son of an athlete. So even more so, my, my, my dad just instilled that, you know, you want to put wins in the win column. Nice. So there I was playing uh, in the Best Buddies tournament uh, uh, game. Uh, and Tom was playing quarterback for both sides. And it was... Michael Chiklis and myself and a few other people, <laughs> and Maria uh, Menendez. Or, and then a bunch of kids were playing, you know, right around 14, 15, 16. The final play of the game, score is tied. And I know that there's one kid next to me who's never touched the ball. And I know Tom's going to throw it to this kid. That's so good. I was like, I was like, I'm ripping this kid off. Yeah. So I see Tom. I see the elbow. I see the eye. I said, I'm sorry, kid. And I ran over. I jumped up and I pulled down this kid's. I ran it in for the game winning touchdown. I'm not going to say what Tom said to me, but he said it with a smile on his face. Let's just (laughs) let's just leave it there. And he did sign the football, but he didn't sign what he said. Nice. I would have uh, absolutely done the same thing just to have that in my repertoire. I have a situation where I talk about manifesting anything in your life. Right. And I was a gray away model for L'Oreal. So I tell people all the time, I've been a L'Oreal model. I can manifest anything. (laughs) And they're looking at me kind of like you picked off Tom Brady. Then they're wondering, wait, are you pulling a piece of material on me at this point? Right. Exactly. Well, now you have a new comedy special. I do. And you've been everywhere, man. And I'm a big fan. Uh, above it all sure but you went about it a different way right than most people go about yeah. it number one how did you think about uh, pulling this off and why did you think about pulling it off in yeah. the way that you did well 
I wanted to create something really bombastic, but at the same time, introspective. Uh, because that's where I'm at both in my life and comedy. I love creating something massive for the masses and, and you know, grand slam ideas. But at the same time, I have a lot of personal um, pivotal moments in my life that I want to be able to bring people into. So the idea of shooting it on my front porch in my home in the Hollywood Hills with the legendary Marty Kulner coming back to direct. Marty Kulner uh, directed me in Vicious Circle at the Boston Garden at the TD uh, Bank North Garden at the <laughs> yeah. time. And the whole idea of it was to create something that I felt um, was in the never been done before business of, of stand up, which is uh, it is my home. It's not a set. Uh, it's a crowd of people that did not know they were being shuttled to not only my special, but to my front lawn. So suddenly all these strangers are sitting there saying, I'm in, I'm in Dane Cook's house. And I always <laughs> wanted to do a show on the porch. And I'll tell you why that meant the most to me and why that I felt like that resonated with this big uh, dynamic idea. When I was 11 years old, I used to stand on the porch and, you know, my dad would have a few drinks and neighbors would start to come in. And next thing you know, you're barbecuing and stories would be flying around. And there always was somebody who was, in essence, performing on that porch. And some of the laughter was from something crude. Something might have been a bad impersonation of the neighbor doing the thing with the thing. But I took from it a real organic, a real a, a happening. And when everybody went back to their homes that night, I always remember thinking as I was laying in bed, I bet everybody's reflecting on some of the funny antidotes and quips and, and uh, tomfoolery that was happening on the porch when I was performing or, you know, or one of the other neighbors. I always took it with me. And as years went by, I thought if I ever have a beautiful home and if I get this idea of this house in the hills, I'd love to shoot something up there and, and, and create something that I think would be um, aesthetically beautiful as well as just bang them up funny. And that's what we've done with Above It All. And Above It All ends up to be Above It All. The magic that happens on the actual show did it meet your expectations? Was there some nuance that you didn't expect? Well, something happened where I had all the material that I wanted to do on the Friday and Saturday night. But about an hour into the first show on the first night, I relaxed. I was in the pocket. Let's keep it in, in a little bit of nice. uh, you know, sports uh, analogy. Um, I was so, uh, I felt so warm and welcomed, even in my own home, entertaining and hosting in a, in a sense that although I had the preset material that I wanted with my director to accomplish, I found myself going off book and really pulling people into my personal story as well as the material. So what happened was something really um, tremendously uh, unique, which is a very funny comedy show with also dialogue and me sharing almost commentary telling you, this piece that I just told you, let me tell you why I wrote that. And I was almost commenting on the material. I'd never done that in my stand-up to that, to that level. To be filming it and have that captured now sharing it is, uh, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, that's super cool. Now, there's another aspect that I see you doing and talking about is, with a lot of my friends, by the way, is the wellness side of things. Right. And, you know, the wellness side of being comedian hasn't always been aligned. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And that's what always, I was wanting to be a comedian. I had two problems. One, I wasn't that funny. And two, I'm an absolute follower when it comes to habits. And I've been backstage at many comedy clubs. Right. And the habits that are being performed backstage <laughs> were yeah. the ones that got me in trouble where I went bankrupt I in 2008 and almost <laughs> lost my wife. So 
Uh, I think uh, Richard <laughs> Lewis once called it a pirate's den backstage. Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, for you, wellness is a priority. It's a right. non-negotiable. And now you're bringing it into not only your comedy, but also corporate engagements and other areas True. and opportunities um, that you have. You know, for you as a comedian, you know, how and what take do you take on wellness right. today? What does that mean? And how do you empower other people to live uh, a well, more healthy life? Well, thank you for life? asking me that. Well, I aim to inspire. Uh, because I was always searching for people that were aiming to inspire me. I was fortunate to have an incredible mentor when I was in high school, Frank Roberts, who was my drama teacher. And more than that, he was, I used to call my second dad. And he was a person who instilled a lot of values that you don't always get the things that you need from your family. Sometimes you get things from your family that you actually don't, don't need. Yeah, I had one of like, those dads. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to, you know, you have to unlearn some of the chords that, you know, you think are, you're playing correctly. But, but the, the truth is I've always wanted to take not only my successes, I've had some great successes, I've had some great failures. I've had some moments that um, I, I could have let define me through, um, you know, not being able to get up. Those minutes, everybody says, you got to get back up, get off your, that's a process. You know, it's a, when someone hears that and they're in a low moment, it's probably one of the hardest messages to, to right. It's like being depressed absorb. and someone tell you, just look at the yeah. world is half full, you know, like eat some chocolate <laughs> and do a light jog and you're it's like, like yeah, enough to pull yes. the trigger. <laughs> when you, when you get there, of course, of course, you know, you want to uh, idle mind is the devil's workshop. And there's a lot of things that you want to momentum. Uh, begets momentum but i want i would like to instill in people and i choose to instill in people when you're in that low moment of your life when you're at what, what we call a rock bottom moment don't be so fast to try to get up and away from it take a moment look around there's a lot of data in failure yeah. there's a lot of information in the lowest moments of your life that when you finally hit an upper echelon you will realize, and I promise you, you will realize that some of those little, you know, factions and, and flex that you that you caught, that you saw, that you observed, and that sometimes you obtained, is are the very things that grew you to greater heights. So I would like to be able to let people know that through my own journey, I, I can promise you, I would not have gotten to the place that I got to without the worst moments and the failing moments. But I choose to look at those as pathways to success. Last question, you know, I, I love to see and participate in perception. And it's an interesting thing that I've learned, like David Tyree, you know, tell me what that catch was like through your eyes. Yes, yes. Right. And one of the things that you've done in your life is on my bucket list. I don't know. Hopefully someday I can manifest this like I did the L'Oreal model thing. Or are you picking <laughs> off Tom Brady? But you've hosted SNL twice. Yes. And I think you turned down auditions when Adam left, Adam Sandler left. True. Right. And you didn't audition. Yeah. Didn't but, even turn them down. Was not prepared to even audition. Didn't have the the guts yet wow. to get in there. Yeah. That's amazing. And yet now you've hosted it twice and right. you did exceptionally. But I would love for you to share the participation in that perception. What was that like the first oh. time you did it through your eyes? Like, give us a little bit of a story sure. around that. Yeah, it's I can tell you it's actually a quick story. But to me, it's such a gut punch, um, even even reliving it and, and thinking about it. I was in eighth grade when I would watch Martin Short uh, <laughs> do characters like Ed Grimley and uh, Jackie Robbins Jr., $100,000 jackpot wad, and the <laughs> Billy Crystals and the Dana Carveys. I just loved that world. 
But in particular, on this one night, I was watching, and Martin Short was was really having just a a highlight reel moment of um, his appearances on the show. And I remember when the show opened, they showed the the door that the host would come through, and the band is playing. And I turned to my mom and I said, I would like to come through that door someday. I would like to know what's behind that door. Because I, what I interpreted is behind that door is a lot of fun. A lot of happy comedians <laughs> that are... Man, come on. I didn't know about any... You know, I didn't know that it You're was eight. just like any other business and it could be competitive and cutthroat. But at that time, I was alluring. It was, uh, it was like just a glamorous idea of... So there I was standing backstage the first night I was hosting. And I'm, I'm back there. I'm behind the door. And I'm looking through the beveled glass and I can hear the band playing. Don Pardo was still the actual voice of SNL. Nice. And I had a moment where I thought to myself, after all these years wondering what's behind that door, I'm behind that door. I put myself behind that door. I, I believe uh, the overused term is manifesting, but I really believe that I, I willed this. Yeah. Because I put in the work. I put in the time, effort, energy. I had a constitution that I stuck to. And you have to have a mission statement. And I followed through on that mission statement. And where did that put me? It put me to the very place that I dreamed about seeing someday. And I believe any of us can put ourselves in those those places. It was a blast hosting Saturday Night Live. Now, you are obviously at that point a seasoned actor and comedian. Nervous? At that point? Yeah. Oh, man, my heart was racing. I was like a hummingbird back there. I remember looking at the one producer who was with me. And she had the, the headset on. And she was counting down when I was to go through. So without yelling in the mic. She was, you're me, and she was like this. Okay, and the band's playing, and she's like, okay, 10 seconds. Okay, and I can hear John Park, it's Saturday Night Live, and he's going, and he's doing, and the band, da, 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 da. and then she's like, four seconds. And then she looks at me, and she goes, you're going to be great. And I believed her, and I was like, I am. Like, I answered her. Like, it was exactly what I needed, and then finally that door opens, and everything that you learn, at the same time, two things happen. The mechanics click into place and you forget everything. And you just know that you're going to be okay because you've put in the 10,000 hours. Absolutely. And I will tell you that I had Tom Brady on the show and I asked him. And he him talked when about he was the pick Most six. nervous. And he said, <laughs> <laughs> He brought it's it up, always, of course. Dane, he wanted me to sign the Dane ball. Cook, yes. When Dane Cook of picked me off for a game when he touched down <laughs> against a six year old who was four feet one. It was the worst time. And his coach said, it Wasn't six, Bel he was 14. And, sorry. He needed to learn that life and isn't Bel always easy. And Belichick said, Don't worry. Don't worry, Tom. You'll Why be are we fine. yelling? <laughs> now we're going to play it on the scoreboard. No, All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tried to get that footage, by the way, and nobody would that let me sucks. have that footage. <laughs> it's because they hadn't invented yeah, iPhones yet. <laughs> what the hell? That's an amazing moment. Not quite as amazing, though, <laughs> as hosting SNL, let alone true, twice. Very true. Not as amazing as it is for me to have you here, Dane oh. Cook, on the playbook. And I can't wait to see above it all. Oh, man. I can't wait you. to see your documentary when that comes out. I can't wait to see what you do next because you are inspiring people. You're bringing Appreciate joy it, to the world. I couldn't give you a bigger compliment than oh, that. Oh, man. It means a lot. Thank you for joining me. Dane Cook here with Dave Meltzer on Entrepreneurs, the playbook. That's awesome. Oh man, what a great, that was awesome dude, that was really a lot of fun.